Welcome to the Work Matters Podcast. In each episode, talking with thought leaders and executives, PurposeWorks founder Thomas Bertels explores what it takes to make work more productive, valuable, impactful, and meaningful. Let's begin the conversation. Welcome back to the Work Matters podcast, where we explore what leaders can do to make work more productive, valuable, meaningful, and impactful. And obviously, leadership plays a huge role in making work either more productive and valuable or leading to a more frustrating work experience. So in our discussion today, we want to explore the role of leadership both in breaking and fixing work. And my guest today is Jeff Matlow. Jeff is a serial entrepreneur. You started four businesses and you sold three. You started a record label, a marketing company, a sports registration company, and now you're in a leadership role with Gannett, which is the publisher of USA Today, among other media titles. You also have a very interesting blog called By Title Only, which people can find on bytitleonly.com. And you're about to launch an exploration of leadership where basically you're asking executives seven and a half questions about their vision of leadership. So, Jeff, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Jeff, we're starting out with the, the premise that I think probably in most organizations, right, work is broken, leading to low productivity, low engagement scores. In your view, what is the role of leadership in breaking work, right, if work is broken? A lot of people, in my perspective, um, haven't really learned what leadership means. You know, and leadership to many people is, is simply a title. You know, if there's a V in my title or a C in my title, well, hell, I must be a leader. That's not the way it goes, unfortunately. And I think that old mentality is still there and, and that a focus on things like empathy and motivation and transparency, which are key elements of companies that have the best cultures, those elements are still not seen in most organizations out there. And Without those simple leadership elements, you know, empathy, understanding, transparency, it gets broken. Like, as we say, you know, the people join companies and they leave managers, right? And it is leadership that is the one that is the most important element in maintaining that company. Now, my, my mindset is leadership isn't just about people on top. Everybody's a leader in their own uh, world or in the, their own way. And they can, and being a leader means exhibiting these qualities, you know, certain qualities that, uh, that define great communication and motivation. And, um, and it doesn't take a title to do that. More and more people are taking control of their lives, you know, especially with an increased remote workforce. You know, there's greater opportunity to show leadership in smaller, smaller circles. I think with uh, especially advanced by COVID, we are in a really unique time right now in the sense of the distribution of the workforce. People are around the world. You can work anywhere you want. Uh, there are, I was checking LinkedIn the other day for remote jobs. There are 691,000 remote jobs listed on LinkedIn. There's like 400,000 on indeed.com. And that's just in the U.S. Those are only U.S. Job, remote jobs. Creating a company culture is no longer about free snacks and a comfy couch. 
right? It is much more challenging to find the great people, to keep the great people, and to make them feel like they're part of a culture. And unless we fix that, it is going to get worse. You know, that's why I'm passionate about, about leadership among the masses, right? Because we have, with great challenge comes great opportunity. I couldn't couldn't agree more. What I'm really curious about is, right, I think it's easy to break work, right? Because managers oftentimes are really not not prepared, first of all, to take a leadership role in this formal sense. Yes, everybody's a leader, right? But some people have formal responsibilities. We end up promoting the people that are the highest performing ones into these people management roles. And as soon as they're in these roles, oftentimes people think now that they're promoted, everybody got to do things their way, right? And that might be one of the root causes there. A lot of these things that we taught people over the last hundred years and how to run a business from rigid management processes, to command and control structures, uh, probably contribute a lot to the context in which managers find it difficult to live up to this model of leadership that you uh, advocate for. But let's say somebody gets religion, right, and realizes that workplace is broken, people are not motivated, there got to be a better way. What are your thoughts as to what leaders can do to fix a broken work situation? Yeah, I think there's a few things they can do. First of all, going to your, your comment a uh, second ago about the Peter Principle, which uh, in case everybody doesn't know, it's people uh, do a good job and are promoted until such point where they're don't know how to do their job because um, a great salesperson doesn't mean they're a great company leader. Understanding that from senior leadership, like let's put people in jobs that they can excel at and uh, keep them motivated in those jobs with their growth. Uh, I think there are a few areas to help unbreak work that leaders can do. One is listening. You know, it's the whole uh, one mouth, two ears type thing. A lot of employees, you know, they just want to be heard. And in fact, the number one reason people leave jobs is because they don't feel respected or heard. And it's something like 66 or 67% of people leave because of that or, or, or talk about that. So listening to employees taking their ideas seriously, implementing ideas, and making them feel like they are part of something bigger. That's number one. Number two is understanding that everybody wants to grow in some way. Not everybody wants to be CEO, but everybody wants to feel some sort of growth and know where a future is. Even if you know, they don't vocalize it. People like understanding what path they're on. So addressing that with employees, here's where this company is going, here's where you're going and what it means to you. You know, I'd say number three is transparency. The more you hide information, the more people will assume bad. And so it is much better to be open. I subscribe to a point to radical transparency of uh, let everybody know what's going on, the good and the bad and trust that, hey, listen, if they really wanna be a part of the company, you accept the good and the bad. Um, the fourth, which I think is challenging for a lot of leaders is have vision. What is the vision that can inspire people? And are you the one that knows how to relate that vision that can then inspire others? But what kind of patterns do you see in terms of, what are the shared characteristics of leaders that build high-performing organizations? 
Uh, number one, they're organized and efficient, right? Focus on productivity. What are we going to do? How are we going to how are we going to get there and make it happen? There's uh, accountability, which is ensure that everybody is in the right role, heading in the right direction, right, and that they do the work they're expected to do. Uh, nobody works in a vacuum. Everybody's activity uh, influences everybody else's. You know, there is a both a visionary and motivational element to it, understanding what the bigger picture is and how to relay that to uh, the everyday worker who may not care about that. Not being scared of challenges, right? Every challenge, as I said, is an opportunity. The great leaders take a combination of data and gut. What is the data saying? The data, everything's not going to be black and white. You know, the greatest leaders are comfortable in the gray area and making good decisions in the gray area. You can tell a lot about any company, small and large, about how they make decisions. How are decisions distributed? How quickly do they make decisions? Do they accept bad decisions? The great leaders, one, will make decisions quickly. They'll do it based on a combination of data and experience. And number two, they will distribute decision-making, right? So everybody knows what level of decision they can make and at what point they have to uh, go up a higher step. You know, those combined with the other elements, it seem to be the basis of great companies, right? The ones that scale, the ones that continue to innovate, and the ones that are agile. Innovation doesn't come from the top. Innovation is also distributed. Yeah, I think you're raising a really interesting point there. Um, one is like the, the delegation of decision-making and power in that sense, right, to make decisions. Yeah. But I think the other uh, point you just made, I found really interesting around like that everybody is connected. And, and I think you could probably take that even one step further that you need like that interdependency of people so that, you know, everybody sits on the critical path, right? In order for work to move forward, which goes a little bit against, I guess, like the orthodoxy to say, let's chop work into small independent pieces of work that we can then individually manage, right? Which also then puts a lot of burden on the manager to coordinate all of these things, right? So what I what I hear you saying is also there's like a there's a different way of accomplish this, right? By really maybe turning that upside down and say the more we interconnect people and make them interdependent, the more right they're gonna also take ownership and accountability for the mission, assuming it's something worthwhile doing. Yeah, absolutely. And listen, you know, you can split up the creation of a car, but if the guy doing the wheels is slow, you know, you don't have a car. Or what I see is moving more and more to team-focused activities in accomplishing tasks in the world, especially with a remote workforce. That doesn't mean all developers are just working on their own. It's teams of various talent that are coming together to accomplish goals. There's going to be more and more of that allowing people to learn beyond their general skill set understanding the dynamic of what happens with teams and how work can be done more productively in a team environment and also responsibility an individual's responsibility to the greater the greater good the greater productivity i couldn't agree more i think that's also one of the big untapped opportunities to really unleash a more productive and a more effective workplace is to really give teams accountability for the work product from start to finish and not just delegate the work, but also delegate the corresponding decision-making uh, that, that comes with that, right? Yeah, and absolutely. And, and the result of that is that sense of accomplishment and growth and those things that keep employees coming back to work and waking up and wanting to keep working. How does the role of leadership change over the life cycle of an enterprise? Let's go through the 
call it four stages of an enterprise. You know, first it's a startup, it's scrappy. And the, the goal is uh, create product and revenue. You know, the requirement of a leader is really control at that point, right? They need to make sure they are in charge of everything for the most part and that it's going in the direction of their vision because there is nothing out there for any employees, if there are employees, to understand what the company is and where it's going. It's all coming from that leader's brain. The mindset of an entrepreneurial or a, a startup leader, it's rare to find somebody that is a both startup and a, a large company person because it's tough. So second, you've got a company and you're growing it. And uh, that type of leader has to be able to go from early stage to growth stage, which is highly process-driven person, right? So that leader needs to take chaos and create clean lines from it and scale. Um, again, not everybody's good at that. Usually the early entrepreneur is not good at that um, because they are the chaos. Uh, and usually the later stage leader already takes existing processes. So there's CEO number two that comes in that establishes those processes. Then there's CEO number three that comes in after, uh, you know, I don't know where the company's at, maybe 10 million, 20 million in revenue, and it becomes scale. You know, how do you turn that into a $100 million company? Uh, that type of leader is really about bootstrap growth. Who do you partner with that can create long-term value? What type of products, what type of investment can you bring in that can create that long-term value uh, up until the point where the machine is running and it becomes a completely different animal of, I'm a runner and triathlete, the difference between a half Ironman distance and a Ironman distance or a mountain bike ride and a road bike ride, they might as well be two different sports. One of the first three leaders is very different than the enterprise leader. The enterprise leader is really about how do you manage the best team? How do you move a large boat in ways that can try to keep it agile? It's slower moving in general. Even the most agile big companies, you know, the Googles and the HubSpots of the world are still slow moving relative to smaller ones. So it requires a patience. It requires a vision of how to get things done, a determination, a clear organization of here are the four things we're going to accomplish as opposed to the early entrepreneur, which is here's the 40 things I want to accomplish. Let's see which ones come up. You know, at first you have the kid who's all over the place and is kind of pooping in his diapers and just wants to get some food and move forward. And then that child continually grows up until, you know, they are highly experienced and focused on management and oversight as opposed to growth. I picture the, you know, that old image of the fish going to the monkey, to the ape, to the human, the evolution of man. Uh, it's basically the same in the evolution of leader. I'm a uh, uh, four-time entrepreneur, as you said, I started things um, with nothing but my idea. Everybody told me I was wrong and I'm an idiot for doing it. In hindsight, I was, but fortunately, I didn't believe it at the time. But I grew in the way that evolution goes. You know, you grow in leadership by understanding that. I like the analogy raising a, a child, right? And a corresponding uh, story a friend told me once was uh, he had a colleague and the kids were terribly misbehaved, right? And his daughter yeah. looked at looked at those kids and said, uh, is he going to raise those kids or just let them grow up, right? And yeah. 
And I think there's definitely some truth to that, right? How do you provide the appropriate steering, right, for the organization as it evolves without doing too much, right? Because if you bring some big company rigor and, and process into a very small organization, that's probably the fastest way, right, to, to eliminate any competitive advantage that you might have. At the same Absolutely. time, if you don't do that, right, then it just turns into chaos. And the next hire brings like a new set of idea that questions every decision that was made before. It's a tightrope that you need to walk, I guess, as an entrepreneur, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that early stage growth um, is a really tough one. It's a really critical one. And it's where a lot of the founding entrepreneurs end up becoming like VP of sales or something like that, because it is a completely different skill set. You have to take the chaos and create meaning out of it. It's the teenage years, right? When the kid is saying the wrong thing and you just kind of want them to shut up and, you know, let the parent do the work. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough challenge. And, you know, one of the things that I've really focused on over the years is, is trying to understand where am I best? You know, what area am I best suited? As you said, I've been leadership at, at one person companies. Um, I've been leadership at 20,000 person companies. I enjoy creating, so I might be better at kind of the mid-stage, but I think it's important for everybody to understand, like, what is your talent and where does that fit in to you, for you to get the most joy and the most satisfaction? And I think also knowing, right, to your point, right, what you're good at, right, and understanding kind of like what works at what scale, right? Because one thing I, Absolutely. I oftentimes see these days is that, right, you have these very well-funded startups and they bring in very experienced people that know how to run a you know hundred million dollar billion dollar PL. But the problem is, right, at that scale, kind of like 95% of all decisions already have been made, right? So you're a little bit optimizing on the edges, right? And occasionally write the ship a little bit, right? Yeah, you know, one of the things I cringe at are these press releases from from young companies where they say we just hired, you know, a former head of sales from PNG or whatever. And like, yeah, that's a bad move because that person has never created process in their life. And you're only at a stage in the company where you need process created. And so hire the right person at the right time because somebody uh, has a nice logo you know, next to their name doesn't mean they're the right leader for that stage of the company. Yeah. And I like your point about process, but I guess also what people in large companies associate with process is probably very different from what you refer to in that early startup phase, right? Where you basically just establish, right? A, a way of working that can be repeated by more than one person, right? I guess. Yeah. And then the early stage, you know, the in the startup stage, you're like, all right, can this be done for this client? And can we make it for another client? And maybe it doesn't scale to five clients, but as long as it scales to the top three, that works. That only lasts so long, right? And then how do you make that um, scale even more and more until you're the billion dollar company where yes, you have a lot of processes in place and it's tough to change one cog without affecting others. And so moving that boat becomes really, really difficult. And that's why small companies come in. That's why Google came in and became the number one search engine over Yahoo. It's why Sears isn't around anymore, right? You know, these other companies come in and they've done what, what the big ones weren't able to. I actually just posted an article today on buytitleonly.com about the four trends that will define great companies in the future. And for companies to survive, they have to be able to change with the trends. And in order to be able to change with the trends, you need an infrastructure to do that. Companies 40 years ago were not thinking about that. So they did not build the infrastructure to do that. Companies starting, I would say the 90s, 
you know, around the Google PayPal times began creating more flexible companies that can change with the trends. And then that led to, I'd say the early 2000s around culture and having people that can be more flexible, having agile processes, both in development and beyond. And it is critical to build, you know, that second and third stage we talked about leaders, like creating those scalable processes. Scalable processes mean create processes that can change and that can adhere to the trends of the future. I look at the iPhone. How many businesses did the iPhone, how many industries did the iPhone put out of business? You know, 20 years ago, there were fax machines, right? There were telephones on the wall. There were cameras. There were heart rate monitors. There, you know, it's, uh, it takes one item to put an industry out of business without agility. I think I fully agree with you. I think culture is one of these superpowers, right? That I think if you can tap into it, I think it does a lot. And I'm a big fan of Ben Horowitz's definition that culture determines what happens when nobody's looking. Yeah. Which I think is, again, in the context of scaling, there's only so much you can accomplish with direct control at some point, right? You got to find some other mechanisms to provide people direction without micromanaging them. But building an effective culture, I think, also requires people to make really hard decisions and trade-offs and kind of like live those values, right? And talk to me maybe about how you created culture in your previous ventures. You know, my last one, I'm athlete, I put together a culture code, a culture doc that defined why we were, who we are, how we got there, where we're going, um, and what we value. You know, what I did is I created eight values that we have at a company. And, and listen, the one, this is not a unique process. Others have done it. But every hire, every fire, every review was based on those values. And you know, firing people was when we had to, wasn't that challenging because everybody realized that they didn't adhere to the values that are most important with the company. So the company was not the best place for them and they weren't the best place for the company. And it, it was very somewhat simple conversations because everybody understood what our values are um, and most importantly promoted them. So what I did is we made tent cards of our values on one side, mission and vision on the other, and everybody had one for their desk, right? And we lived the values. So we rewarded people. One is celebrate the wow, right? So in our Slack channel, we had a wow emoji. We had, you know, wow awards and, and a variety of others. So we, we lived our culture. You know, I mentioned a piece that I wrote about the four global trends that will define great companies of the future. And number one that I put is company culture. And especially as we talked about with this remote workforce, this increasingly remote workforce, culture is more difficult than ever to build and more important than ever. Because just like after the Black Plague, right, where the Renaissance came in because everybody, you know, realized life is short, let me enjoy it. We are seeing a greater trend into life-work balance. You know, that falls into the band culture, entertainment, family. People want to make sure that they have balance. And that is an important element in creating company culture. And I think it being so easy for people to find opportunities, the great talent will go to the great cultures. I couldn't agree more. I think it's really changed from looking at employees as human resources or human capital, right? 
things that you control and consume or things that you own to really looking at employees as, as customers of your work product or the investors, right? People invest their time, their energy, their competence, their skills in your business. And, you know, if they don't see a return, it's very easy for them to move somewhere else and, and invest somewhere else, right? So I think yeah, companies who are going to win are going to have the more competitive work culture purpose product. I love the Horowitz definition of, of culture, but another one I heard too that I, I tend to quote a lot is, a company culture is defined as the worst behavior a leader will accept. It's very accurate, right? If a leader allows people to not show up, then the culture is not caring, right? Everybody else will not show up. There's kind of a, what is the leader doing, but also how do you create that image in the brand uh, internally and externally to, to define a great culture? Yeah, I like it. I, the equivalent yeah. of like the minimum viable product, right? Minimally acceptable yeah. behavior, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, completely. And being able to make the tough decisions of this is what we don't accept and not going to happen anymore and make sure everybody knows. And, you know, in terms of leadership and poor behavior, I think a lot of leaders don't realize that firing somebody can be a good morale booster. You know, you fire the toxic person, you do it quickly and you make sure everybody knows this person is gone because they didn't adhere to these values. Yeah. And these values are really important. And that's why we made our decision that has a huge impact on the workforce. It's like goes actually to a concept that you introduced me to, right? The iceberg of ignorance. Employees tend to see a lot more than say what leadership sees. And oftentimes when you remove that person, the only response you get is what took you so long, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I remember this one time, you know, one of the companies I, I was at, I found out some behavior that was inappropriate, if not illegal. And I made sure it was happening. So it took me a month to figure it out. And then I made a decision. Well, it turns out that behavior had been going on for 10 months and people were frustrated for 10 months. I thought I acted quickly. But for those that don't understand the iceberg of ignorance, the basic concept, and I think this was established in, in the 70s, is that leaders only know 4% of the problems that happen in the company. But the workers, the day-to-day -day workers, know 100% of the problems. And so they're being frustrated with an additional 96% of problems that the leader doesn't even know. And so how do you bridge that gap? You know, oftentimes a quick move in the leader's mind is actually not in everybody else's. Yeah. Um, and that also goes towards, I think, some of the flawed processes that we have around even like designing work, right? I mean, that's kind of like where I look at it. It's kind of like, you know, who gets to decide kind of like how work gets done. It tends to be the people who don't have to do the work, right? Which exactly, uh, yeah, guarantees that the design is probably not going to survive encounter with the real world. So uh, I agree. And, and I think I would hope that's changing among the great leaders of including others in the decision making. You can't include them in all. Sometimes you yeah. got to tell them what to do, but if it involves their day-to-day, -day, hopefully they have some insight. Excellent. Listen, yeah. Jeff, thank you so much for sharing your perspectives on leadership, both the good and the bad. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. And for people that are interested in learning more about your thoughts, check out bytitleonly.com. And I can also encourage people to take the seven and a half leadership questions test. I, I thought it was a really illuminating set of questions that challenged me quite a bit. So I think that's a really interesting bit of research you're doing there. So Jeff, thank yeah. you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it.
And everybody, yeah, go subscribe now because you'll get Thomas's answers to seven and a half questions shortly. All right. All right. Thanks. All right. Talk soon. Yeah, my takeaways from my conversation with Jeff Matlow. One, effective leaders create opportunities for others to grow and distribute decision-making. Secondly, the role of the leader changes over the life cycle of an organization. So what's needed of a leader at the early stages is very different from what's required at the later stages when the organization is fully formed. So it's important as a leader to understand where along that life cycle do add the most value. Thirdly, I love his definition of culture as the worst behavior a leader will tolerate. And finally, I think it's observation that in today's rapidly changing environment, it is imperative for organizations to build a permanent infrastructure for driving and managing change is spot on and very astute. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please also check out the other installments of the Work Matters podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. If you did, please subscribe, like, share, or comment. Until next time, let's make work matter.